Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Even here, I still find it difficult to accept that I am on par with a white man because my years of growing up They were way up there, and we were there. And we were actually taught to respect them. So whilst it might be something we can look at, you people can look at it, what, what's that? But after 100 years of living like that, it has actually become part and parcel of our thinking. Yeah, so, yeah, that's how it is. <laughs> it's, it's a long journey. No easy walk to freedom, as Nelson Mandela puts it. <laughs> I'm Sarade. And I'm Julie. This year, we travelled with our soundy Joey across Aotearoa to eavesdrop on immigrant whanau talking with their children. Every family we visited welcomed us, made us laugh, honestly made us cry. And over this series, we invite you too to listen in on Conversations with My Immigrant Parents. On this episode, we chat with the Muzundiwa family. Or rather, they chat, we eavesdrop, and we also, me and Julie, are kind of sitting in the corner, like, hitting each other when the conversation gets really good. Just, like, gripping each other's hands, making notes, squeaking, trying not to ruin the podcast. <laughs> we really did squeak. The Muzundiwa family hail from Zimbabwe, and they came to Aotearoa about 10 years ago. And in the recording with us is Amos Muzundiwa. He works as a pastor at the Methodist Church in Mount Albert. Um, we even went to his sermon, his service, on the Sunday. And it was good. I was raised Catholic and I don't like church services, <laughs> but I really enjoyed this one. Uh, we've also got Amos's wife, Nyembezi Muzundiwa. So she works as a nurse here. And Nyembezi came to Aotearoa about 18 months before the rest of her family. Yeah, that was really interesting as well. Uh, we've also got Jakunda Mozindiwa. She's 17 now, so she was about seven when she came, and she's at high school. And Jakunda has an older sister, Shalom, who's away at university, and a little brother called Ben, who was born here. So here we are in Uwairaka with the Mozindiwa family. My mum is Nyembezi Mozindiwa, and my dad is Amos Mozindiwa. I'm a lot more like my dad, stubborn, so we kind of, like... But heads, but at the same time, we get on really well. My mum, she's a lot more like my sister. She's got that kind of caring, nurturing side to her. And me being stubborn, I always like to think I know better, but in the end, she's always right, even when she's wrong. You go. You go first. <laughs> no, no, no. Mother's no better. So Takunda, she's our second child. She was uh, born in 2001 in a very remote area in Zimbabwe where um, my husband was working. 
Except that Takunda was almost born by the roadside. I remember very well. It was a difficult time when she was born. Um, so Takunda, you were born in a place called Shurugi in Zimbabwe. I was working there as a nurse. So you were born at this little hospital. I had to go around the village to look for this old man who had helped take me to the clinic. I couldn't go to my own clinic because I was the only charge nurse there. So I had to go to another clinic, which was about 10 kilometers away. So I think you were just born about half an hour after I arrived there. <laughs> And when I arrived, there was a male nurse on duty, and I knew him, and I just told him, no, you're not going to deliver my baby <laughs> because you are a male nurse, and I know you, so there's no way you're going to deliver me. So if there's no one, I'm just going to do it myself. And as a tiny baby, you were a bit problematic. Oh, still because problematic. You, you are still, maybe. But mm-hmm. you were a very playful child, and, and at church, I think people used to enjoy seeing you playing around and trying to imitate your dad when he's uh, <laughs> preaching sometimes. And, yeah, you were very playful. And you never used to have toys when you were a baby. You were just happy with things that were around you at that time. I was born in that time of a real, like, political and economic shift. I didn't really, like, realise that until we came here. And obviously looking at photos of Ben and then Shalom compared to me, they have more photos as babies, you can kind of tell in that sense that I was born like in a completely different environment. In 2001, when Takunda was born, Zimbabwe's political and economic crisis was really bad. Food shortages meant that many regular Zimbabweans, including the Muzundewas, couldn't even buy bread. President Mugabe blamed these shortages on droughts, but his government had been seizing and redistributing farms, which was part of why many Western governments just stopped supporting the country economically. The World Bank and the IMF had suspended aid two years earlier, so the country was kind of drowning, and Zimbabweans who could were very much leaving or trying to. When mum was going away, we had a small part, we just asked everybody to just say something. And so people were saying a lot of things. I've forgotten what most people said. I remember what Tagunda said because she was very, very short that night. She spoke short. She only said three words. Rest in peace. (laughs) What the heck? (laughs) What was it for? To you. To you. (laughs) I don't remember. (laughs) Those were the only three words she said. Rest in peace. (laughs) <laughs> I don't remember it. Yeah, it was um, very, very difficult for me, to be honest, to move over here, especially moving without your own family. But I knew I was doing it for my own children. I wanted them to have a better life. So I knew there was going to be light at the end of the tunnel. So I moved here and I was here for almost two years by myself. And... I got so skinny because I could hardly eat. Every time I sat down to eat, I would think of my kids back home because there was nothing over there. Even in the supermarkets, the supermarket shelves were quite empty and they couldn't buy anything. I I was too young to really understand, like, the situation that we were living and how bad it got. To me, I was kind of living the dream life. I was going outside, I was playing with mud, like... That's all you need in life. That's how I saw it. And then it wasn't until we all moved over here. And then um, you and I went, I don't know what we were doing in Manurewa and you were showing me like where you used to go and like 
you would walk to the bus stop by yourself at like 2am and stuff like that. That really hit me and I was like, oh my gosh, you were really here by yourself for two years. I could never do anything like that. Like, would have been so isolating. Because even with our immediate family being here, sometimes I feel like lonely because we don't have like our cousins, our aunties. I miss like Titi and Malia a lot. And so I just don't understand how you survived that, like not having your extended family, let alone your immediate family there for two years. That's just something crazy to me that I can't even fathom doing. So, yeah, I'm really grateful for that, that you would go through all of that for us. Last week we were driving past Manirewa and I was showing you where I used to work. I remember I used to walk to the bus stop because sometimes I would finish like uh, 11 o'clock at night. I used to do double shifts, like I would go 7 o'clock in the morning and finish around 11, 11.30 at night. And I just found it so expensive to catch a taxi to go back home. So what I had to do, because some buses, I think they would finish at about 11 o'clock. So after 11, you wouldn't find a bus to go back home. The trains, they would finish before midnight if it was during the week. So I just found it very difficult to catch a taxi. So I'd walk all the way from Takanini to Manurewa along the road. Like sometimes I'd get home around one o'clock in the morning because I wanted to save money so I could get my family here on time. I don't really know how I managed to survive walking at night around 1 a.m. just by myself. I didn't even think about it. I just walked all the way and it would be so quiet in the streets and I would just walk home and thinking that I just needed to save some money and get my family here. So I, I worked really hard. So Nyumbezi was living alone at this time in a tiny room at a boarding house. She said it was just big enough to fit one single bed and that was it. And I think this was quite a common thread for us with a lot of our different whānau that we talked to. They often had one parent go ahead to New Zealand. Usually and, not the mum. Well, maybe so, that's just our perception that it's always the dad I going feel like first. I definitely You reckon it's always. Yeah. I'm almost always. It did strike us that sure. it was the woman, the mother, coming first, being alone here, being a woman of colour here in a new country. We shouldn't know the way things worked here, the public transport system. Dealing systems. with our shitty public transport yep. system in Auckland, yep. Yeah. And I think that for a lot of this generation, definitely our parents' generation, the stuff that they dealt with when they had to come over and try and pave the way for their kids, they don't talk about. Yeah, my mum doesn't talk about that unless I directly ask. Mm. There's so much sacrifice and hard work that goes kind of unnoticed in a way by our generation, my generation, the 1.5, the second generation. We just don't kind of appreciate the extent of that sacrifice. So as well as hearing what it was like for the Muzundewas coming here, we wanted to hear a bit about what it's like for them now, going back to Zimbabwe. There are a lot of feelings that are associated with uh, going back to Zimbabwe for me. Uh, most of them, I must say, disappointing because I grew up during the time of the war and I saw terrible things. But I also saw Zimbabwe at its very best when it was nothing other than beauty and hope. But unfortunately, when you go back now, it's like every time you go back, things are worse than they were last year. It's always a huge disappointment that each time you go back, the so-and-so has died and so on. And you have missed that family opportunity of being together in times of crisis. And there's always that sense of um, 
even though people don't look at it, they know your situation, but you, you always feel like, oh, people think uh, we, we, we don't care. We like leave them. Yeah, we like we've abandoned. Mm. No, we never see you in times of crisis, you know, like you used to do, would always be together, would go through things together. And even though nobody is saying that, but you kind of feel it like that. Mum, you're always telling me like about whenever we go and I see other kids who are my age and they're either like working as a maid or they don't have enough money to go to school. They're out working in the fields all day with their parents. It kind of comes with this guilt. I feel like I'm away living this luxury life and their kids who have so much less than me. And then at the same time, going back home is always good because I feel like I get to connect with my childhood again. There's so many things I can remember, like when we go out and have food at like Pizza Inn and Creamy Inn and stuff like that. Obviously having family around me again and just being in an environment where your language is alive and thriving and then also it's nice to not feel like the minority, like everyone when you enter Zimbabwe. I don't know why it always takes me aback that like, well, so many black people now, like I just blend in casually, you know? For me, there's always like a sad feeling when you go back home and sometimes you really feel bad. You talk about someone and they're like, oh, he died five, ten years ago. Didn't you know that um, because of HIV, most of my friends of my age have died and you don't even get to know. There's only like a few people that I get to connect with these days just through social media. But most of my friends have died, which is kind of really sad because you haven't got people to share those memories with, um, your memories in nursing school, your memories at high school, in primary school, they're kind of like gone and you go there and you're thinking, oh, is this in the country that I used to know? It's a different country. But what also makes me happy is just enjoying the food when you go back there, just mm -hmm. as different and you just feel like, oh, this is the real food mm -hmm. <laughs> that I miss when I'm in New Zealand. Yeah, and just having the time to talk to each other in your own language and you can, like, talk all night and you don't even get tired of it. Mm. <laughs> yeah, I still make sure that when I get to Zimbabwe, I have my hair long so that I'll have the privilege of having the beautiful haircut. <laughs> African barber. <laughs> <laughs> I grew up with just nice haircut, like when they do it here, it's like they're just running a scissors through a head. <laughs> Yes, I, I think uh, we miss that simple communal aspect of life. Uh, for me, those are the two critical components that I remember much in Zimbabwe, the, the simplicity of life. Mm. No appointment. I don't need to phone anybody to say I'm coming. I just pitch <laughs> just up. Just turn up. <laughs> just turn up. You don't need an invitation card to go to a function, all you need is to hear about it. And uh, hearing about it is your invitation. And then remember to behave yourself when you get there. Yeah, I remember it used to annoy me quite a lot when you just have someone turning up without even calling you to say, I'm coming to visit you. They just turn up like even 11 o'clock at night. They knock on your door. Oh, we're here to put that. up for the night. I really used to complain about it, but now I miss it. I'm just realizing how important it was. Yeah. yeah. So it's that simplicity of life 
and it's a communal nature when you suddenly live in a very individualistic society like our own you you'll miss that one okay so to me this is so classic everyone but the west you know, this is the critique. This is, I came here and it's everyone for themselves. It's, uh, you know, single single person rises to the top. And yeah. Don't you think? Yeah, I mean, I guess lots of us come from cultures where you don't have that. But also it's hard to know because I feel like we've been conditioned to have mm. that individual lens. Like oh, I, I probably definitely do. <laughs> yeah, um, I think I do too. Well, also kind of for us, like idealising the collectivist culture in a way or maybe there's a shift nowadays you know I, I, with I like think decolonization we do movements I think we aspire to it but I don't know if we'd know what to do when we got there yeah our generation we're like inherently too selfish now to live with that um I think that like people here are not necessarily to say that one way of living is wrong another is um right but definitely I would say in African communities it's always just a collectivist culture knowing that as an individual what you do is meant to serve for the greater purpose of the group as a community whereas in New Zealand I feel like it's more um, self-driven like how can you better yourself as an individual rather than how can what you do better the community as a whole. Yeah you look at it in two ways isn't it one might want to say the best way to uplift a community yeah. is to uplift individuals. Because at the end of the day, if all individuals are uplifted, then the community is uplifted. Yeah. But one might want to look at it and say, no, uh, the best way to uplift an individual is to uplift the community. If you are living in an uplifted community, every individual would benefit but the problem with the individualistic approach is the old principle of survival of the fittest. The bigger, the stronger, uh, the cleverer, the sharper will then get too way ahead of others and others get left behind. So in the old African communal lifestyle, there was nobody who was to be left behind. When you see the Africans express themselves, they are so free. It's about them as a group. It's not like an individual wants to protect their own dignity and character in there. Mm. It's about them. So they are free to dance and to play and to do things that we normally don't see. So I think that's the problem with an individualistic society. It also becomes about me even in the way we celebrate things. Even back in Zimbabwe and then moving here, We've always been the family that, like, moves around a lot. We don't stay in one location for a long time. Um, so when we first moved to New Zealand, we were living in Manurewa, and that was, like, for a year. And then we moved to Taranaki, and we stayed there for quite a while. Six years. Yeah. And I I think that was the longest we'd stayed in one place, right? Mm. So I became really attached to Taranaki, and then when we changed our mind, we were like, okay, we're moving to Auckland Again, I hated that with a fiery burning passion. And then that just brought a whole lot of confusion in my mind again about where do I belong now? Do I belong in Taranaki? Am I meant to start a new life in Auckland? Do I go back to Zimbabwe? At the time, I was really angry and I was so annoyed that we had to move. But I think it forced me to kind of go on this journey to like explore my culture and sparked that desire to have a connection to my culture again as I was going through this 
identity crisis about where I belonged. And I think it was good for me that now I realise how much I do like cherish Zimbabwe and that's where I want to be. Yeah, that's very true. And that's where the crisis comes in. That's where the whole thing becomes a crisis because uh, human beings are not only formed in the home. They are also products of their community. Um, culture is not something that can be limited to your own home because culture is community. It's unfortunate for us, even if we want some of our families to come over here, it's um, quite hard. It's really hard to get them to come over. If only we could manage to get our nieces and nephews to come and live here, it could be wonderful. But sometimes uh, there are things that are beyond your control. Yeah, I think being surrounded by like predominantly European friends, it's forced me to realise and cherish what I had back in Zimbabwe because whenever we have the Methodist Zimbabwean conferences in Australia and we can like all have banter in our language and like sing songs together and get things like I can say jokes and stuff that I know that only they're specifically going to understand. Like I love that sense of having family in that friendship and um, though I love my friends like back here in New Zealand at the same time, I think they'll just never be able to, to connect with because they don't know what it is like to live the black experience, to live in an impoverished community prior. Those are things that they can't synonymize with. See, the crisis that uh, you diaspora kids are facing, it's not new. I think that's, that's one of the most important things for you to remember. It's not new. It has always been part of life. Societies have always moved. Those periods of upheaval has always been part and parcel of human history. And societies have come out of it. Finally, I think it is also important for you kids to know that even when you see us, me and your mom, and probably even our, my, my brothers and sisters, and even my, my parents, those people you are seeing there are no longer Africans. See, essentially you are looking at a, at a European in a black skin. And, and, and we are still negotiating what it means to be really African ourselves. Because we have been changed a lot. And we have assimilated so much of Western culture. And that has not left us with our true identity. So what you are actually crying for is actually a middle ground between an African and a European. To us, it looks like, okay, then you must have it together. You know exactly what it means to be African. Your identity is so strong and because you want that so strongly for us and are always pushing us to, like, make sure you keep speaking Shona, make sure you remember these practices, make sure you remember these traditions, etc. It paints the picture that you guys, like, have it also put together. I guess I've never really considered that Africa in itself, there are still issues of assimilation and that enduring legacy of colonisation is still so strongly rooted there and things have changed there. It's not what it once was before. Mm. In honest, we, we struggle with issues of assimilation a lot and the long period of colonialism 
has done a lot of psychological harm to African mentality. Mm -hmm. There was a time when every white man, even the name you will hear them speaking of, Murungu, mm-hmm. it translates that Malawian is God. So what implanted in African mentality the idea of a Western white man is one of a superior being. Yeah. And I, even here, I still find it difficult to accept that I am on par with a white man. Because my years of growing up, they were way up there and we were there. And we were actually taught to respect them. And you can think of 100 years of that. And we were taught that everything European, the way Europeans eat, the way they talk, the way they dress, the way they go to school and get educated, the way they move, those were far superior things. And very few of us can ever aspire to be there. So whilst it might be something we can look at, you people can look and say, well, what's that? But after 100 years of living like that, it has actually become part and parcel of our thinking. Yeah, and I think that it becomes like ingrained in people's way of thinking at a young age. And I think what people of my age now are facing is that you come to realise that those psychological effects which colonisation and assimilation are having on you, it's all people who are saying that um, black people love being oppressed, people love the feeling of being oppressed, people draw a sense of like empowerment from being oppressed and try to capitalise off that in a sense. So then it brings back those ideas of, oh, am I doubting myself now? Am I actually crazy? I'm not actually experiencing these things and they're not valid in any way. Yeah. So, yeah, that's how it is. <laughs> it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a long journey. No easy walk to freedom, mm-hmm. as Nelson Mandela puts it. <laughs> it is very interesting to see some of these things coming out of Takunda as well. And it's something that I never thought would come out of it. And I never thought she values the Africanness so much. I think especially um, teenagers of this generation of on social media and that whole thing about being woke now, um, people are starting to grow that fear of remaining ignorant to things Mm. and want to challenge the ideologies that they have, which may not necessarily be correct about what it means to live the black experience. It doesn't necessarily mean enjoying oppression or wanting to capitalise that or gain pity from anyone in any sense, but Mm. it's about acknowledging things um, that have happened in the past because you can't, grow if you don't know like the things the mistakes that you've made in the past in order to be able to move forward when Gabi was coming out and Nangago was coming in I think around then I realized that um I hoped that that shift would produce like a different version of Zimbabwe that I hoped for and it that result didn't really come out but personally I also think that the future of countries like Zimbabwe lies in the hands of the diaspora child. Mm, I agree. I, I think these young people that are scattered in New Zealand, Australia, the all United the States, world. Britain, all over the world, and they have not been tainted by the institutionalized corruption um, and the greedy 
uh, of the few in Zimbabwe because in Zimbabwe for you to be a leader why you want to be a leader is you want to have your hands on the cake mm. that's the only reason why people want mm. to be politician political leaders there the motivation is to put your hands on the cake it is not to save mm. so i i think diaspora kids like like the likes of takunda are the ones that would come in with a pure and purified concept of leadership where you are there to you know to guide the nation mm. let's hope that they will be given a chance to do it but in my view that's the only way those of us who grew up there um <laughs> i'm not so sure about <laughs> our motivation for being leaders i'm not sure i feel really proud of her to feel like she wants to save her own people back home and um she's got this understanding that the main reason i came here was for her to have a some better education and not only for her but also to better her community her people yeah i think one thing that really struck me about takunda was just how she as a young diasporic child that she does have a desire to go back to zimbabwe back to her home country where i feel like most kids of the diaspora we don't want to do that lots of us are trying so hard to assimilate all we want to do is belong in this new usually western country that we really reject our mm. own cultures so mm. for her to so heavily want to help her own country i feel like that's so different and low-key inspirational yeah okay so something that julie has been really interested in with every episode of this podcast and with this project as a whole is getting migrant POC to talk about their relationship to New Zealand as a colonised place, right? Yeah, well, I think, again, that thing of when we're trying so hard to assimilate, what are we assimilating into? And usually here it's Pākehā culture and Mm. I feel like we need to really critically analyse why we want to do that and how we can support decolonisation movements and re-indigenisation movements and what that role of migrant... POC um, or Tangata Tawiwi is to this land what responsibility we have to For that. real. And how do you bypass the dominant culture and go straight to... to building solidarity with Tangata Whenua. Mm. Totally. Um, but also I guess it's interesting because migrant families often do face so many struggles of their own, like how much is that achievable? How much is that realistic when they have so many other struggles they need to kind of get through first? Is that just an excuse? I don't know. I was totally shocked by hearing somebody so much older be so progressive and so anti-colonial. And it's also interesting, right, because Amos works in the church, Mm. which is part of the tools that that white supremacy used to colonise so many countries. So It's a whole enigma. Yeah, and I don't know if we really delved into that very much, but I'm sure that... We could do a part two of this, and Amos will probably have a lot of interesting things to say about that. Amos can have his own podcast. (laughs) Just to view New Zealand as a Western world. Where does West come in there? I just can't make sense of it, and I probably will never. Of course, they will tell you that culturally, we are West. What does that mean? That here, 
white supremacy is now an identity. Just the fact that we sit here in Maori land and accept that this is Western world. Uh, I, I don't really know. I think it's just that uh, problem of colonization that we were talking about. I think it will take years or even centuries to get this, those things changed if ever they are going to change. Mm. Mm. But there's power in names and in words, isn't it? There's power in names and words. That when we use, mm. you know, those images like, oh, we, we are Western, uh, it, it's like, it's just like, it's normal talk. It's like innocent. But how innocent is it? Mm. So I, for me, that's part of the problem. So in my view, you, you young people, you can talk what you want. The Maori people will forever be second rate here in Oteroa as long as the official language of doing things is English. To strip anyone of a language is to strip them of their identity because when you speak words, it speaks so much into the space and I believe that anything that you speak is to like manifest itself. So even mm. for me personally, even when I think about what it means when people say in Western cultures and Western places, I think in my mind instantly I'm, I personally picture like a predominantly white culture and so obviously I'm instantly going to think that there's no way that Zimbabwe could ever be a Western culture because it doesn't fit into my ideas of what it means to be a Western culture already. We're always going to remain second best or not on the same level playing field as mm. um, white communities because it's already been established in the systems that we have that the Māori language is not the language that's going to better you as an individual, the system set up. Like if this is an individualistic community and you're working to get yourself higher up, English is the language to do that in and it's not the Māori language. When I came here to New Zealand, you could hardly tell which was the official language here mm -hmm. because when you go to countries like Zimbabwe, Shona is being taught in, in schools. Every school you go to, Shona is one of the languages that children are, are, are taught. But here you, so many schools, you don't uh, hear schools that speak in, that teach Maori languages. Like you have to choose it as a subject. It's not a compulsory subject. And would really love them to speak the language as well because we are in New Zealand. would want them to go back home and say, oh, I can speak Maori because I've lived in New Zealand for so long. But they won't be able to speak it when they go back home. They won't have the richness of languages. Somebody talked about it on TV, I think it was two days ago, when we were talking about the snatching of kids, of children. Of uh, kids being taken away by that by, uh, Tamariki. Uh, Oranga Tamariki. And he said it, and I have not listened to a better statement in a long time. Yeah, I remember. Mm. You cannot understand a brown man using a white man's tools. The question of tools are very important to me. And if there's anything the Western world knows, it is to handle the tools. That's all they do. They hold the tools. And they know that as long as they are holding the tools, they have an advantage over everyone else. And the language is the most critical tool.
And the second is the greater framework of culture itself. The Western culture, that's a huge tool. They will impose it on you. And once it's imposed on you, that's it. You can try all you can try. I have never seen a country that has developed from being a third world to being a first world. I've never seen one using another nation's language. I've never seen that. As long as you are using another nation's language, you remain third world. That's it. Part of the responsibilities of um, immigrants to the Tengata Fenu or the peoples of the land is first and foremost to affirm that these are the peoples of the land. Let's get down to the root cause of these things. Why is it Tengata Fenua on the wrong side of statistics like this? Is it because there is something genetically wrong with them? Or is it that uh, the tools that are used to move society forward here are against Tengata Fenua? And I think it's a huge responsibility that we carry. Yeah. Where our roots are, we are understood, we are appreciated, we are accepted, and we also understand every transaction and we legitimate every transaction that takes place there. But when you then move to a second home like we are here, for us here in New Zealand, certainly our roots are not here. We, we don't have the, the genes uh, the genetic code for a terrorism, a, a terrorism. We have to learn a lot of things from others. We have to simply copy and paste what we see other people doing. They, it doesn't flow in our blood. We have to eat what we eat because that's what's there. We have to eat it that way because that's how it's being done, but we don't feel like that's the way we eat. You see, we have to speak the language because that's what we have learned but it's not what enables us to express ourselves fully. So to me, home is where your roots are, uh, but it can also be where you spend more hours. Ed. I think I'm still trying to figure out what <laughs> home means to me, but I think the way that I've chosen to see it now is that, yeah, and two ways I do have two homes. Zimbabwe is where my roots lie and then New Zealand is where I'm spending more hours, so to speak, and it's where I'm living my day-to-day -day experiences. For me, I, I just feel like I have two homes as well, like um, Takunda said, because back home I still have lots of my family there, brothers, sisters, cousins, and you name it, friends. And uh, New Zealand feels like my second home as well, because I think I've got a lot of good things from New Zealand. It's given me so much, especially for my immediate family. And that's where we spend most of our time at. And we're spending more time together than what we used to do in Zimbabwe because that's your family and you've got no one else outside. So you tend to get close to each other. And I, I, I feel I've got two homes. Belonging. <laughs> Belonging. How do you belong? <laughs> How do you belong? Because the problem with Western mentality is you belong via a system of papers. No? We sign papers. Because there's a paper that's been signed. 
and the seal put on there. You now belong. But I think belonging is far deeper than that. To belong is to be accepted. Where you are accepted, where you are listened to, where you are respected, where your presence matters. And when your presence doesn't matter, you don't belong. That's my view. The most interesting thing about this episode and this conversation for me was this idea that you're never going to find this pure form of your identity or pure form of your cultural heritage because of colonisation. Yeah, that was such a, like, mind-blowing moment. We both looked at each other at that moment like, wow, because you always look at your parents as if, especially if you see your parents as having such a well-formed understanding of cultural identity. And you look to them as the ones who can tell yeah, you about your yourself. Models. Yeah, yeah. And then to know that they've had a distorted view of that or they might still be forming that because their world has been changing as they've been growing up. Or that it doesn't exist. It doesn't exist. Yeah. So we just wanted to say a really big thank you to the Muzindiwa family for having these deeply nuanced conversations in front of us and on this podcast. You can check out photos and videos of all our participants on Instagram at ConvosWithMai, on Facebook at Where Are You From Really, and on RNZ's website. Conversations with My Immigrant Parents was created, produced, and directed by Julie Zhu and Saray De Silva. Recorded by Joey Siasoko, sound engineered by Colleen Brennan, with original music by Tal. Our cover illustration is by Ngaumutane Jones at Ms. Mimo, with design by Sonia Milford. RNZ supervising producers are Sarah Voitalitu and Justin Gregory. RNZ senior commissioner on this project is Kay Almers. Conversations with My Immigrant Parents was made possible by the RNZ NZ On Air Innovation Fund. He konai ipurangi tēnei mō te reo irirangi o Aotearoa. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.